The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome back, everyone. Week two of our course, looking at the Buddhist teachings on the three wholesome and three unwholesome roots. And it's really, you know, one of the more simple maps of we're just trying to understand our lives and more specifically understand the mind and how the mind, in a way, in a very direct way, of course, is feeding into how we experience life. And so in Buddhism, we call this particular, it's really the foundational insight, first insight that a human being has once they start to pay attention in a more, with a little bit more integrity and sincerity, they, we notice, right? I'm assuming we're all here. We begin to notice that how my mind is, how my mind is actively relating, participating, sets stuff in motion. And when my mind is participating in a way that sets stress in motion, we call that way of relating, participating, we call those qualities unwholesome or unskillful. Or if you read that article I sent, the link for Andy Olensky's article, you know, he thinks that a kusala is really unhealthy. Right? Kusala, a kusala, wholesome, unwholesome. Um, so we get a direct sense. Oh, when my mind is like this, when my mind is relating in these kinds of ways, things get rough. You know, I'm planting seeds, not only for my own unhappiness, but for the unhappiness of those around me. And when I'm relating in other ways, well, a different reality is set in motion, different kind of seeds with different consequences. Right? And those are the wholesome seeds. And so we're basically learning how to read our life and read our heart, read what in Buddhism we call the conditional or conditionality, the conditional nature of the world, subjective world we inhabit. It's conditional. And we're, it's not a deterministic like we're just screwed by how things are unfolding in a deterministic way because part of the conditional unfolding is how I'm relating moment by moment by moment. So even if we've been relating with a lot of greed, a lot of anger, and a lot of delusion for a long time, we got a new chapter right now, this moment, right? So maybe there are going to be a lot of painful effects for all those previous moments where I was relating with greed, with anger, with delusion. But now I can plant a different seed in this moment. So it's really meant to be an empowering teaching. It's really important that we use these teachings in this way, right? It's <laughs> we're looking for this result where we're inspired to, to participate or you could say to meditate or to train the heart and mind 
because we don't feel hopeless based on our personality, our mental condition. So however rough or unskillful your conditioning, you know, of course we blame our culture or blame our parents or blame our friends or whatever, you know, the conditioning factors were for this personality to be the way it is. But given that it's this way, what are we going to do about it? And I really like, I mean, this is my interpretation in a way, but i it's sort of built into the Buddhist teachings that, you know, we're really, it's not personal that my personality is this way, but it makes sense to take responsibility for it. You know how in physics there's this law that, you know, energy is conserved. So if we've got some momentum about being greedy or being angry or being deluded, disconnected, in denial, right, that that tendency of mind will, like the Buddha says in some of his teachings, there's nowhere that one can hide from the consequences of what's been set in motion. Like, well, I'll commit suicide and get out of here, you know. But just as a way of opening our mind, like some being, some sentient being, will be experiencing whatever seeds have been planted. So, like in a Buddhist sense, we wouldn't say that's going to be me. But what's in motion will express itself. So we have like out of compassion for ourselves in this life, out of compassion for who, whoever might be sort of aware of the consequences of the seeds. We want to both stop planting unwholesome seeds and wisely uproot the unwholesome tendencies through understanding through understanding what they are. And it sounds initially like a lot of work. Wouldn't it be just easier to watch a lot of good TV, you know, and wait until the end, and, you know, whoever ends up with my unfinished business, you know, whatever that next sentient being is, wherever they might be, right? Tough luck, you know? That, that's your responsibility then. <laughs> but what, what is really important is to see that this work of healing the mind, this work of purifying the mind, developing the mind, training the mind, is really a joy. It feels good. And the, and the thing is, any approach to living that involves greed or anger or delusion, if we take the time to look at it or feel it, it doesn't feel good. So we've been um, more specifically this week hopefully checking out greed. But let's just review, you know, just kind of get a deeper sense of all three of the unwholesome the more we really understand what greed is, 
in our heart and mind, in our bodies, the more we understand what hate or anger, aversion, fear is, the more we understand what delusion is, then we know what non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion, right? Because it's very rich. Non-greed is very rich. All the beautiful flavors of generosity, all the beautiful flavors of contentedness, and that sort of being able to let go, being able to allow or let things be, renunciation, right? That's a lot of rich human territory, non-greed includes. And non-hate, non-aversion, you know, just like not being afraid. That's a beautiful quality when we're really not afraid, undefended, and kind and tender and appreciative, grateful, right? All that is sort of the rich territory of non-anger and non-delusion, not that we have the answer, right? It's just more, we ha- the answer we have is like the capacity to see clearly. Not like, you know, we always get, when we hear something that, something like that, seeing clearly, we always think of people who are brilliant, you know, and they, they can make all these connections and they, they have one of those creative minds and they can learn new languages and they remember people's names and, pronounce things that other people can't pronounce and but non-delusion is is really more grounded and simple than that it's like it that's why you know like when in the stories and in the tradition you know there are a lot of simple uneducated people who had deep awakening right it isn't essential to be well read or well you know have a intellectual, a real strong intellect to be free. It's really more, non-delusion really means more about not being confused by mental construction. And, and so in this sense, I mean, I'm not, I don't think it's, I don't think I can say that having a really strong intellect is a disadvantage but I think it could be argued both ways. Like there are some advantages to having a, a brilliant mind in terms of uncovering real freedom in your life, but there are clearly some disadvantages of having a really kind of a stereotypically brilliant mind, which usually means very fluent in the world of concepts. That's usually what we mean by that, very nimble and fluent in that world of mental constructions. So the Buddha says, and I think the Dhammapada and a few other places, there's no fire like lust, no grip like hate. It's nice these visual, visceral terms are really useful, aren't they? Right, because that, like that fire of lust, I don't know, when you're looking at a catalog, like think of sometimes and this is some of the things you might share in the small groups later in the evening, but you know that it's like we're burning through stuff. You know, there's some image and we're kind of burning with that, and then after a while, there's no juice left in that image, and then we need a new TV show or a new page in the catalog or a new something, like if you're sitting there, 
people watching somewhere, you know, and deciding who you're attracted to and who you're not. It's like you can have your gaze on somebody for a while and then you want it on somebody else and then you want it on somebody else. Or if it's kitchen gadgets or if it's futures for you, like who you might be, right? And you wear out, you feed on some juicy image until there's no juice and then you kind of burnt through it and the fire needs more fuel. So the greediness looks for something else to desire, something else to want, to keep it going. Right? So it really has that quality of fire needing fuel, finding its fuel. And anger, you know, even though we want to sometimes, depending on the particular expression of anger, get even, throw something at, you know, but the grip is here in our heart, that sort of um, contraction. And then the net, no, the Buddha says, and no net like delusion, like that entanglement of delusion. Because it really, it's characterized by the mind spinning in circles, thinking that we're going to resolve the confusion by figuring it out. Because a lot of times, you know, the mind, this is part of the problem of our thinking mind, it asks questions, but it never considers whether the question needs to be answered. Why, why aren't I happy? You know? Because we can spin, it's like, then all of a sudden I feel the need to answer that question, to have an explanation why there's so much suffering. But it's like that, you know, example of the child. And you give them, the, the person, the child, an answer, and then they say, why? <laughs> why? You know? So that's that entanglement, that circular mind when we're in that expecting conceptual cognitive thinking to resolve the existential uneasiness of our heart. That some answer, some conceptual answer is going to remove the burden, the weight, the grip, the uneasiness. It's like another question that seems like we have to answer is just like, I'm no good. Am I no good? You know, just the sense of, do I have any value? Does my life have any value? Because no answer, no answer with thought is going to be satisfactory. Whatever answer, like, no, you're not good, or no, Mark, I'm telling you you're good, you're a good person. But I'm not saying that it, like, there are definitely less skillful and more skillful ways to answer deluded questions, right? But that whole realm of trying to resolve our existential pain philosophically or you know, cognitively, it's chasing our tail. It doesn't really work for long.
um, Cam sent a short, I think 11-minute piece from a talk Joseph Goldstein gave, so I sent it out. I think it was in the first email. It just the link didn't work, but it was at the bottom of the page. But I sent it out again so it wouldn't be confused with the other attachments. Um, and it's nice. It's just Joseph reviewing the, the three unwholesome roots. And one of the things he mentions in the tradition is that these unwholesome roots aren't considered to be inherent to our mind. Like we aren't inherently greedy or angry or deluded because the mind is sort of its nature. Just like nature isn't inherently greedy, angry, angry or deluded. It's, it's really a construction, something that arises when the supporting conditions are there. So that means it can, greediness or any of the three unwholesome roots can cease when those unwholesome roots aren't there. I mean, when the supporting causes aren't there. And that's what I was trying to point to in the guided meditation tonight, right? Because it's one of the interesting things. We really want to get this, like so much of the path of practice is better understanding what mindfulness is. That's a big part of the practice. Like, what does it mean to be mindfully aware? And and one of the ways to sort of do this reflection is to really get a sense that when mindfulness is present, the mind has a lot of immunity from the three unwholesome roots, right? Because if that mindfulness is strongly established in the mind, that doesn't mean the mind is dependent on a meditation object because it doesn't really matter. The object, mindfulness isn't dependent on any object. Any object will do. Any experience will do. What experience could arise for us that we couldn't be mindfully aware of? Self-hatred? Oh, self-hatred's like this. Feels like this. So, Mind, mindfulness has a way of diffusing the kind of toxicity, the capacity of the seed of anger, the seed of greed, the seed of delusion to sort of set something in motion. Because what makes the unwholesome roots unwholesome is the identification, right? is the attachment. And mindfulness is in a way, I mean, this isn't exactly right, but we sometimes say steps back or steps out of that delusion of identification, attachment, and sees the phenomenon. Now we're just talking about seeing one of the unwholesome roots, right? So it sees the greed as just a conditional, natural arising that's there, but it's not claiming it as me or mine, right? So then the unwholesome root loses its primary support, which is the mind is taking it as self, as me or mine. So really, that's because otherwise the whole path gets really complicated. Oh, I got to uproot this tendency in my mind, I got to uproot this tendency. And I need all these different Dharma tools to do it. 
I mean, it really is, for some of you, the kind of Dharma nerds in the group tonight, that you'll find some joy reading about how people practice and reading the sort of diversity of teachings that come from the Buddhist tradition. But it's really, you know, I mean, part of it is that reading them and thinking about them, they might sort of come online in the right moments where supports, like in a way, allows the mind to frame the experience in a creative way where you're now seeing what you didn't see before when an experience like that arose. So these teachings can be useful, but you don't need the teachings. You just need to be really interested in mindfulness. And then every once in a while, when experiences are arising and you don't feel like you know, you like you've forgotten how to be mindful, or you don't know how to be mindful for when this is arising, then it's good to have some wise Dharma friends, some teachers or books to check into where you can look at the index and say, hey, did he have this or she have this experience? And turn to that page and see, you know, get a new perspective because there's probably something the mind's not seen and it can be really helpful to have a friend help you see, help you mirror back your habit of always looking in a particular way and therefore missing what's right there in front of you in your experience, but your mind's not in the habit of seeing. But basically, there are a lot of practitioners throughout history that haven't done a lot of study. And you know, part of the whole ethic of study and memorization arises in the tradition more as a way of preserving the teachings than as a way of practicing. Right? So there really is a very strong study component, memorization component, especially in Theravada Buddhism, but I think, uh, I think all the schools have it in their own way. But it was because the sense that the teachings are really important and just a, a very wise sense that it's easy f- through history for things to be lost or, pl- or contaminated or diluted or whatever. And so let's, you know become Dharma nerds and really praise people who memorize and, you know, build big temples where the teachings stay. I mean, there are problems with that. There's problems with that conservative ethic in, you know, spiritual institutions. But I'm really grateful that these teachings are still available some 2,500 years later because it could have definitely been otherwise. And there are many places where the teachings disappeared. I mean, there are examples, for, exa- for example, um, in Burma, I forget exactly the context, but where they had to send monks to Sri Lanka to kind of get some of the teachings because, I don't know if it was some rogue king or whatever, but you know, there, through the course of history, things happen. And then things need to get reinfused. And this is not an isolated situation. I think this has happened any number of times in different um, places where the Buddhism was established and lost. I mean, it was centered in India for over a thousand years, right? And then 
basically almost completely ceased to exist in India after, you know, change. And so one of the tools, you know, that we'll just learn naturally, but it can be nice to hear it, which is when there's when greed is quite dominant, quite active, right? And and there's some mindfulness, maybe it's not strongly established, we'll see how the greed, how the fire of greed is getting refueled. You will see it directly in your mind. Now you're going to hear it now as information, you know, and it will not seem that significant. But when you actually see it in your mind, you really get, oh yeah, that's worth remembering. So like, how does greed... The fire of greed keep going. Well, it really depends on what the mind is paying attention to, and when I pay, how I pay attention and what I pay attention to. So, if I'm paying attention to the thing I'm attracted to, whatever it is, and I'm paying attention to it by noticing the pleasing aspects of that mental image, or maybe it's actually there in front of me and I'm looking at it, or maybe I'm touching it or maybe I'm smelling it, you know, it just depends what the object is. Well, that's fueling the greed. Obsessing about the pleasantness of something that we want fuels the wanting. I mean, it's kind of obvious. So how, how do you, what is one of the Dharma nerd tricks for weakening greed when it's in the mind? I mean, if there's a, powerful mindfulness, you can immediately, the mind can immediately step back or have some space and perspective and realize that all that craving, all that wanting is just something being known. So basically, immediately seeing the impersonal nature, that's just a thought, that's just a feeling, it's just stuff being known. But rarely is mindfulness and wisdom Rarely does it have that much momentum. So often what we have to do is we have to be a little bit more strategic. Sometimes it's like turning away. We leave the area so we're not going to experience the thing that's attractive, the thing that we want. I'm not going to go there because I'm in a long-term committed relationship and I don't really want to be in the same room with this person I'm really attracted to, right? Because it fuels the fire. Or, you know, I don't want to hang out with these people who have all these things that I want because it just fuels the fire. Or whatever we, you know, whatever it is that we're attracted to. So one is removing, but we don't, sometimes we can't do that. And sometimes we don't want to do that. And so maybe we turn it from envy to appreciation, right? That's the mudita practice, the appreciative joy, where we're around a really wise and kind and beautiful and magnetic person that everybody loves and is, we really would love to hate them, but we can't because we also find them very <laughs> wonderful to be around. And instead of just feeling bad about ourselves or envious, we can just appreciate the goodness of that person, right? But one of the things that, one of the go-to strategies 
is to see the limitation of what we crave, whatever it is. We crave a new car, and then we imagine, we bring to mind having to make the payment. Or we bring to mind somebody scratching it, like it's parked there in the grocery store lot, and uh, I'm inside shopping, and someone opens their door without thinking and puts a dent in my brand new beautiful car. Right? And just really like, oh yeah, that's possible. Or any number of ways to see the burden, like how it contributes to glo- global warming, or how it you know, causes kids growing up in the city to have more asthma because of the pollution. And we bring that, like we keep that in mind. And it's really interesting to, like, and you can play with this, like the things that you really strongly want in your life, just balance off the tendency to only see the positive and the thing you want by strategically bringing up and dwelling on what's limited in that thing that you, you desire, that you want. Now, there's shadows to everything, you know, so this could, <laughs> you know, be a shadow to. And the same, like, with anger, you know, there's, anger is seeing the negative, so it's like one of the interesting things when we have a lot of fear, a lot of aversion, if we can find some way to establish my, uh, loving kindness in our heart, it's not really possible to be both angry and have actual feelings, qualities of love, compassion, joy, any kind of any of the flavors of love in the mind at the same time. They just don't coexist in one heart, one mind at the same time. Some of you know that discourse from the Buddha about the peg, the wooden peg, where we, in, in a sense, insert something in the mind, and by really bringing that to mind, something else gets pushed out. But we're not directly telling ourselves to stop being angry. We're just bringing our cat to mind and remembering how nice it is to hold the cat next to our heart or how nice it is to get a hug from this friend who's really been there for us. So whatever it might be that allows the heart to get established in kindness. But it's really up for each of us to first and foremost rely on being aware because that gives us immediately some immunity to realize that anger is being known. Now we're still in the vicinity of being seduced even when we know anger is being known or greed, lust is being known. But we have some, immediately we have some space. And then with that initial space, we might, the wisdom can be active. With no mindfulness, there's no wisdom in those moments where there's no mindfulness. M- wisdom needs the space that mindfulness provides. W- mindfulness allows for wise choices. Choice exists when there's mindfulness. We're basically on autopilot or robots without mindfulness, where the stronger habits just lead to the choice. There's no sort of wisdom there, tasting, feeling out the different intentions that arise in the mind. Oh yeah, this intention has the flavor of being unskillful. This intention has the flavor of being more skillful. 
This feels deadening. This feels liberating, right? That space comes from being mindfully aware. And then wisdom can do that discernment between the different motivations or intentions that are kind of in the mix in that moment. Otherwise, we're just the robot, just on autopilot. So in your small groups tonight, you know, I mentioned last week, you know, just to be reflecting on, um, in particular on greed tonight, just because next week we'll look at anger more directly. So I just mentioned last week to track how you notice greed arising during your days. And in particular, noticing, as it's more subtle, moments where there seems to be a relative absence of wanting or relative presence of contentment, not needing the moment to be different than it is, right? And then to think about like planting seeds and then really like how does the, what are the supporting causes that gets the mind to the place where it makes sense to plant that seed, and then what are the consequence, consequences you've noticed? Because like in one of the places the Buddha talks about, here I'll just read this, enraptured with greed, enraged with hate, blinded by confusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, a person aims at their own ruin, at others' ruin, at the ruin of both, and they experience mental pain and grief, and they follow with unskillful deeds, words, and thoughts, and they really know neither their own welfare, nor the welfare of others, nor the welfare of both. These things make them unaware and ignorant, hinder knowledge, or painful, and do not lead them to peace. Right? So we, we make a mess not only of our own life, but we make a mess of others. So that's another thing you can reflect on, you know, as you saw greed, as you know how greed operates, to really see how it's not helping you and not helping those around you, and even in a wider way, making the world the way that it is, unjust and cause for pain. And I'll just end with this point. (coughs) I might have mentioned it last week, but I wasn't sure. But there's a really, for me, a a very potent simile or image that's used about these unwholesome roots. And uh, it's really useful to to study up about (coughs) the related to the figs, fig trees, and the tropics. And they have very tiny seeds, and the birds love these fruits. And then they poop, and they often poop in the tree. It's uh, another tree, right? And these seeds can start growing on the branch of a tree, especially in the tropics. There's enough debris, enough moisture. Eventually they drop roots, and then over a long period of time, these vines will completely encircle the host tree. And there might be, they're like banyan trees, you know, there, there might be 200 main trunks, eventually this one plant. I mean, it takes, it's like a, could be several, I think they can be as big as several city blocks, like in places. 
Some of you have seen these trees, right? And they're just, and it's kind of creepy. That uh, That's a very potent image. Like, because it's a tiny seed, it doesn't seem so bad for me to be reading a catalog and lusting after all the things I want. Or for me, more likely would be looking on Zillow for a perfect cabin on Lake Superior that I can't afford or something like that. Um, it seems like a relatively harmless activity. But we don't realize that it's just a little bit easier to be greedy to think, to d- in a deluded way, to think that greed, acting on this greed, will lead to some kind of satisfaction. So it goes on and on. And greed feeds aversion. Because really aversion is feeling betrayed, feeling frustrated by our greed. Life's not delivering what I want, and that makes me angry. My partner isn't making me happy, and that makes me angry. The world isn't the way I want it to be. Right? And then when we're really angry and raging, right, it really hurts. So we're, we're, we don't want to be in our life. Anger is really painful. Greed is juicy, at least on the surface. It burns underneath. But on the surface, at least, it's a little juicy. But anger just hurts. So then we're more uh, likely to dwell in delusion, to be disconnected, to not want to be intimate. And that's so flat. To be alive, but our strategy is to be deluded, to be disconnected, then we need more and more need something nice to happen to us, something pleasant, because we feel so disconnected, like life is nothing, flat, numb. So it, they all feed into each other, right? And then we're more desperate for something juicy, pleasant to happen. And we're more disappointed and frustrated and angry when it doesn't really make us happy. And we want to be more disconnected because it all... That anger hurts, and on and on. So I think there's going to be lots to share because we've been in these circles of samsara in our own particular way now for a long time. But in general, if you have something to share about greed and what you've been learning about greed or how greed operates in your mind, so even what you don't know, like just how it dominates and controls your life, because even that, Talking about it in an objective way like that really normalizes it and just helps us be more skillful with it. So there are a few of you who haven't been in these small groups before. It's often nice because you're going to be discussing together to share what your pronouns are. For a few of you, this may be unfamiliar, but more and more these days, people aren't comfortable with the he, him, his, or the her, she, her, hers pronouns. They just aren't so interested in being identified in a binary way. And so they have other pronouns. So it's just a polite thing to do in our community to in these more intimate settings where three people are going to be talking to each other for 20 minutes to just ask or have each of you say your name and uh, what your pronouns are at the beginning. And it's nice to decide the order. Sit really close so you don't have to use loud voices and that way you won't disturb the groups that are around you. It's anonymous, meaning what you share in your small group stays in the small group. And each person gets two to three minutes to share. 
And then there's usually five to ten minutes at the end just for open discussion. And one of the real important tricks when someone else is speaking is just be in your body. If you really intend to be aware of your own body, it actually makes you a better listener. You really hear the person. And you don't have to nod, and it's not really the time to ask clarifying questions. And if the person runs out of things to say after a minute or so, we just hold that silent space because they can continue to reflect silently. They might have more to say before their two and a half, three and a half minutes are up. Okay? Anything I'm missing about the instructions? So it looks like about, I don't know, 65. So why don't we do 22 people? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.